0: Well, welcome. I think we will begin. Uh, welcome to the class for Deuteronomy. I will open us in prayer, and then we will pick up where we left off last week. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for this opportunity to come, and not just here to this hour, but to the last several hours when we have come and praised you for your goodness and your glory when we have been reminded that you are our Lord and that you have died for us and pardoned our sins, though they are great. We thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you especially that you have given us this permanent reminder, not a jot or a tittle that will be erased from this word that reminds us of who you are and our obligation and privilege to live before you. We pray that you would open our eyes again this morning, this hour that we would be able to understand and be formed by the words that you have preserved for us by the hand of Moses in Deuteronomy. We pray for your blessing, that our faith might be deepened and our affections for you might grow, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Deuteronomy 7 this morning. We will pick up in verse 1. As you turn there, a brief reminder of where we've been. Uh, Deuteronomy is... Primarily Moses' great sermon, if you will, or his, uh, even a couple of sermons over the giving of the law. Moses has given the great commandment in Deuteronomy 6, which kind of begins a new section. So a lot of commentators will point out that everything from Deuteronomy 6 through chapter 11 is roughly Moses' commentary on the first commandment. I have no other gods before me, and arguably make no false images either. He begins that explanation really in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And one more time, just for our own edification, I think it would be worth reading Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through verse 9, and I'll remind us of why we're doing that here again briefly. Uh, But let's read the passage first. So Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Last week we started looking at verse 10, and what I pointed out was verses 10 to 15 of chapter 6 have a thematic resemblance to verse 5. So when Moses says, You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Verses 10 to 15 can function as an extrapolation or an explanation of what that verse means. Likewise, verse 6, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, seem to roughly be elaborated on in verses 16 to 19. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house has a striking resemblance to what comes in chapter 6, verses 20 to 25 in the ESV. These are all separate paragraphs. Verses 8 and 9, Bind them as sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes and write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates, bears a striking resemblance to what we will look at this morning in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 6. And the reason I bring that up is because it kind of answers uh, the question, again, as, as Pastor Andy said this morning, when you get to ask the question, uh, you get to determine a lot about what the answer is going to look like. If we were to ask the question, what, how does one maintain and express a command to communal devotion to the Lord, which is largely what it seems to me, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 6 are about. Bind them on your hand as frontlets between your eyes. The curious thing about that is if they're frontlets between your eyes, they're hard for you to read. Have you ever played the guessing game where you put a picture on your forehead and someone else gives you hints and you have to guess what it is? Well, doing that, uh, putting them as frontlets between your eyes, functions certainly for the person who's wearing it, but really for those who are looking at the person who's wearing it. And uh, similarly, having them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, those are communal exercises. And what we deal with in chapter 7 verses 1 to 6 is how does Israel as a national entity have these words permeating the land of Israel to the exclusion of others? And what we deal with in chapter 7 is primarily to the exclusion of others, and we'll come to that in just a moment. Uh, So how does one maintain and express a communal devotion to the Lord? We can begin in chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, And clears away many nations before you the Hittites, the Gergeshites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous, nations more numerous and mightier than you. There, another reason I include all of these together, so that little exercise we just did about this verse seems to correlate to this. Another reason I do that is because if we look at chapter 6, verse 10, where all of this began. Notice how the passage is phrased. When the Lord your God brings you into the land. And notice how chapter 7, verse 1 begins. When the Lord your God brings you into the land. That forms brackets. A beginning and an end. Book ends, as it were. Moreover, how the land is explained in chapter 6, verse 10 and chapter 7, verse 1, are a little bit different, and I think significant. In in chapter 6, verse 10, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, is compared to what comes in chapter 7, verse 1. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it. It moves from being the land that is promised to the patriarchs to the land that is being possessed by the peoples. There is a shift there in possession, as it were, or at least in anticipated possession. No longer does it belong only to the patriarchs, but to the people who are here before Moses. Both chapter 6 and chapter 7 look forward to their time in the land, but their time in the land is reflected on from two different angles. One promised to the patriarchs, the other, a land that you are about to possess. We could say it's the difference between the promise and the being on the cusp of having the substance of the promise. That's where Israel currently is. And if we think about that, it's not all that dissimilar to our own experience. We could spend a little bit of time uh, thinking about how we have already entered our rest in Christ and how we have not entered our rest in Christ how we are, on the one hand, already justified, we have the promise of that justification in hand, and yet we anticipate a future justification based on our conduct as we walk through life. And so something Israel has promised and something Israel already has compares to our own state of something we already have and something we have yet to look forward to But there's one more comparison between chapter 6, verse 10, and chapter 7, verse 1. Back to chapter 6, verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, again it's land sworn to the patriarchs, but in chapter 7, verse 1, there are seven peoples listed. The Hittites, the Gergeshites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Though the substance of the promise is about to become Israel's, she still has a need for perseverance. She can't simply lay down and say, All right, God is giving us what he promised, and now it is time for us to relax and kick back and enjoy some time. Rather... The occupants who are in the land are going to possess such a threat to Israel that she has to be constantly aware of what uh, that threat is and take action against it. Verse 2, When the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. The current inhabitants of Canaan pose a threat to Israel not because of their military strength, even though they're more numerous in number. And it's not because Israel's technology was any better. It wasn't. Israel's technology was considerably worse than what the established Canaanite population already had. The Lord does not point to the military threat the Canaanites pose. He points to the spiritual threat the Canaanites pose, which is a far greater danger to them. Notice that God says he's giving them over. Verse 2, when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to destruction. What's going on here, and the reason I point out the contrast between chapter 6 and verse 10 and chapter 7 verse 1, is this question lies before Israel. Who are you going to identify with? Are you going to identify with the patriarchs to whom the land was promised, or are you going to identify with the inhabitants of Canaan? Are you going to be like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who walked before me in faith, or are you going to walk before me like the Canaanites who I'm about to drive out of the land? And as we'll see in a little bit, the result for acting like a Canaanite is being treated like a Canaanite. As the Lord drove out the Canaanites, he'll drive out the Israelites if they apostatize as well. So back to chapter 3, chapter 7, sorry, leaving chapter 6 behind. Back to chapter 7, verse 2, Moses makes three predictions. First, the Lord will bring them to the land. Verse 2, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land... Or I could even say verse 1, when he brings you into the land. Then verse 2, the Lord will give them over to you. And then number 3, and you will defeat them. So there again, three predictions. Now, the reason Moses is confident Israel will enter the land, the Canaanites will be dispossessed, and Israel will defeat them. Those are predictions. The reason Moses makes those predictions is because each of those things are necessary in order for God's promises to be fulfilled. Israel does not have the land until those three things happen. They're going to happen. But Moses follows that up with a command. Then you must devote them to complete destruction. That is one command, and that's the central command. That command is given in explanation in the following section. Still in verse 2. You shall make no covenant with them and show them no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them. So three prohibitions on what it looks like to devote them to complete destruction. Do not make a covenant. Show no mercy. Do not intermarry. That's what devoting them Ultimately looks like I find it fascinating That Moses does not need to tell them As part of devote them to destruction To annihilate the population He doesn't have to tell them To displace them Or to strike them That's part of the prediction You are going to strike them You will defeat them You will smite them As the KJV might have it Um, You will be victorious But there is going to be a threat that lingers And that is You're not going to get all of them the first time you swing the sword. There will be some who remain. And what do you do with those who do remain alive? Make no covenant with them, show them no mercy, and do not intermarry with them. And what intermarrying them looks like is given even further elaboration following in verse 3. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Now, the ESV does a terrible job, I think, of bringing out the change of pronouns. Perhaps a different translation does better. The way we would, I think, best want to read it is the way the Hebrew has it, which is You shall not give your daughter to his son, or, uh, well, his, yeah, or take his son for your daughter, or vice versa, your daughter for his son. Anyway, it switches to the singular, and what's happening there with the switch to the singular is it should put an Israelite in the hypothetical shoes of an Israelite who is tempted to marry off his daughter to a Canaanite or to take a Canaanite daughter for his Israelite son. It should make it very particular for that individual where they can envision this happening, and what the Lord is saying is, don't do it. It will be tempting for an Israelite to do it. Don't do it. Verse 4 gives the reason for why they shouldn't, for they would turn your sons away from following me, which is actually he would turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would quickly destroy you. The national policy... Then is this. Devote the Canaanites to complete destruction. Why should the national policy be devote the Canaanites to complete destruction? So that Israel will not enter into transactions with them? So that Israel will not come to favor them? And so that Israel will not intermarry with them? And that is the eventual outworking, isn't it? those who we enter into agreements with, we tend to favor because we have some sort of benefit from them. And what Moses is saying is don't begin the process. Do not make any contract with them because when you make a contract with them, you're bound to derive some personal advantage from them. When you derive that personal advantage from them and they're there and you see their way of life and it feels normalized to you, your scruples in giving, in intermarrying with them are going to be decreased. Don't ever let that happen. Always maintain scruples about intermingling with the Canaanites. Don't ever go the other way. And now what happens here is Israel does not become less religious because of her intermingling with the Canaanites. What happens is the object of their worship shifts from Yahweh to false gods. But she doesn't even notice that's happening. It's just normal where she is. These people worship these gods. And when our children intermarry, that normalization will increase in speed to where they, the couple at least, will go off track and they will no longer worship the Lord exclusively. You will remember perhaps before this time, Israel got ensnared at Baal Peor, Because Balaam told the Moabites, you can't defeat them militarily. Here's how you defeat them. Seduce them. If they will not fall for idolatry outright, try sexuality. And of course, it was strikingly successful. The way the Israelites fell was through their sexual drive. And what Moses is warning these Israelites of is don't do that. Don't make a covenant with them, lest you come to favor them. And when you come to favor them, you're tempted to intermarry with them. Don't even start the process. Rather, devote them to destruction. Given three negatives one more time make no covenant, show no mercy, don't intermarry. And then there are four positives as to what that looks like as well, starting in verse 5. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall first break down their altars. Second, dash in pieces their pillars. Third, chop down their ashram. Fourth, burn their carved images with fire. What is the antidote to intermingling with the Canaanites? Well, refrain from these three things and positively destroy everything that relates to their worship. The challenge is, it is difficult to destroy what someone worships without first destroying the person who worships it. People are notoriously stubborn that way. Uh, We will stick to worshiping what we've worshiped, and whether or not uh, our methods of worship are destroyed, we'll continue to worship the way we've been going, right? I hope that's true for the Christian. Take away the church building. Try and burn the books. I hope we don't forsake worshiping Jesus Christ. It also works the other way. Burn their altars. Smash their pillars. uh, Burn the ashram. Do whatever you're going to do. The worshipers are still there. And the worshipers pose the bigger threat. But you can't annihilate what they worship until you destroy the worshipers themselves and the threat for failing to do so and being seduced, again, end of verse 4, lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and he destroy you quickly. Moses is teaching Israel here a kill-or-be-killed mentality. That's what this is. Destroy them before they lead to your destruction. Jesus teaches us the exact same thing Though slightly different application, perhaps, in Matthew 5, verse 30. We'll also go to Second Corinthians here in just a brief moment. Matthew 5, verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. That right hand, of course, can take a million different forms. Normally, we would think a right hand is pretty innocuous, and most of the ways temptation comes to us seem pretty innocuous. They're not outrightly obvious. And we often derive benefit from them, right? Who doesn't like using their right hand? Jesus knew that was the dominant hand for most people as well. And yet, he says, even though you might derive personal advantage from it, if it causes spiritual trouble for you, get rid of it. Whatever earthly benefit you derive from it is not worth the destruction of your soul. Whatever benefit you get, if it causes you spiritual problems, get rid of it. Paul goes in a similar direction, 2 Corinthians 10 Verse 5, Second Corinthians 10, verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. To take every thought captive to obey Christ. That is quite a large range of thinking that we are to willfully direct. Um, But that is the same thing, right? What happens if the thought is um, running on the loose? What do you do with it? Cut it off. Uh, You destroy it before it destroys you. Israel is not left with some sort of alternative. She's not able to let the Canaanite population remain, just destroy what they worship. No. Not left with leave what they worship as artifacts and destroy the population. No. Destroy the population, destroy what they worship. Destroy their methods of worship. Everything goes. You enter into a clean land with a clean slate. There is no alternative of compromise. Paul holds out the same standard for the Christian back in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 18. Of course, this has to do with marriage, but it goes far, far beyond that as well. So if if you are around a group of friends and they uh, lead you into gossip or crude jesting, perhaps consider a new crowd. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. What happens in verse 16, 17, and 18 is all the positive side of the coin compared to the negative in Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy says the destroy everything, 2 Corinthians 6 gives us the carrot for why we ought to do it. What could be more motivating than for the Lord to call us his people and for us to be able to call Yahweh our father and that he will call us as sons and daughters? So there is tremendous promise here. If the Israelites are to follow through with the direction the Lord has given them, tremendous things are in store for them. But they have to go through the process to get to that point, which is destroying everything in the land that is in competition with their worship of the Lord when they get there. So again, rather than engaging with them, Israel is to destroy all forms of their worship. Verse 5. Very briefly then, what are they destroying? You shall break down their altars. The uh, We could just call that the object uh, on which uh, other objects are sacrificed. Names of gods are attached to altars. So altars bring with them connotations as well, both sacrifice and the names of the deity that are, are worshipped through that altar. Dash in pieces their pillars. They're sort of like memorial stones, often used to remind the people of the advantage that they received from a god or perhaps even to remind the people of some sort of obligation they owe the deity Uh, We've seen these before in Genesis. Back in Genesis 28, verse 18, we have the exact same word occurring. Genesis 28, verse 18. This is where the Lord appears to Jacob at Bethel. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had cut uh, that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it he called the name of that place Bethel but the name of the city was Luz at the first. So there Jacob sets up a pillar and he pours oil on top of it and what Moses is telling Israel is all of those Canaanite pillars destroy them all. They don't let any of them remain. Again, uh, the name of a god is often connected to him, or at least what the god has done for the people. So some sort of uh, memorial of benefit. Ashram, the, second, the third one here in chapter 7, verse 5, chopped down their asherim. Asherah was uh, considered to be a, an escort, a goddess escort for the male deity of a place. What good is having the male if you can't have the female as well? ashram are ruled out at least by the first two commandments if not uh, more than that but here what the lord is saying is you will be tempted to think that i work alongside other gods do not think that all ashram are to go and the last one burn their carved images with fire just simply cast forms of gods moses begins this list with what is the most unlikely to be a problem why couldn't we repurpose the canaanite altars for our altars Um, And if you pay attention to Israel's history, there are at least a dozen places where she offered sacrifices to the Lord, and it seems to be legitimized in the text. Before the Lord chose his place at Jerusalem, there was worship all over the land of Israel, and there was no problem with that. Once the Lord chose Jerusalem, then it's a problem. Uh, But there's a time in Israel's history where they worshipped all over the place. Uh, You'll remember Joshua set up an altar at Shechem, and that was uh, right at that time to do so. But Israel is to destroy all forms of worship, use nothing of what the Canaanites used. And ironically, we may think we take little from the culture and our forms of worship. I'm skeptical. We form our time of singing often to resemble modern concerts, and sermons look a lot like TED Talks. If you've ever seen a TED Talk, you know what I'm talking about. That is what pastors often try to emulate. If you've ever been to a concert... You know that the the great places in town to worship are the places where they have rock band quality musicians and lights and the strobe effects. All of those different things. We take a lot from the culture, and I think there's a couple reasons for it. First, we don't even realize we're doing it. We're simply repurposing what we've seen elsewhere. Concerts have an effect on us. Uh, they uh, mental a little bit emotional. Concerts are designed the way they are in their auditory and in their visuals to produce some sort of effect in those who are there to engage with that concert so that you'll come back again. Uh, Who wants to put on a bad concert, right? You lose people when you do that, so you create a good concert where people can have a good experience. And when we come to church, let's face it, we're often gauging how good our spiritual experience was And we use the same measurements we do at concerts and TED Talks. Now, what would you get out of the sermon? Uh, Well, this is what the TED speaker told me. And how did you think singing went this morning? Well, let's let's use this litmus, litmus test and try and factor that in. Unfortunately, in the secular world, and I think it's bled into the evangelical world a good deal, experience trumps content. Content is a vehicle, at best, for an experience. The experience is what you're after. Moses doesn't seem to care so much about the experience, he's after the content. That's why he's all about teaching and instructing and so on. So he goes after the Israelites to say, don't do as the Canaanites have done, you worship the Lord differently. The second reason I think evangelicalism often slips into the practices of the culture is the church is trying to attract Canaanites. And how else do you attract a Canaanite but by acting like a Canaanite? And so it's very easy to slip into, well, if we want people to come into the church, we have to lure them in with something, and it's certainly not going to be the content. And so we offer them something else that might be attractive to them. But verse 6, which I think should be part of the previous paragraph gives the explanation or the rationale as to why Israel is not to think that way and why Israel is to do all things different. Verse 6 of Deuteronomy 7, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Israel has a particular status bestowed upon her. You belong to the Lord. Don't do as they do. Do things as I direct you to do them. uh, Because the Lord has made them holy and has chosen them for himself. Again, if we were to flip back to Exodus 19, we won't do it for time. But if we went back to Exodus 19, that is the great passage in which Israel is given the reason for why the Lord redeemed her from Egypt. So you will be to me a holy nation, and a kingdom of priests. That's why you're here. And that's what the Lord gives them. So she's to act like it. Thoughts or questions over what we've covered so far this morning? Great question. So if, if you didn't hear the question, uh, it was how, what sort of experiences or um, mentalities did they take away from Egypt after having been there for 400 years? How, how formed by Egypt were they? That's maybe another way we could ask it. Um, I don't know. Uh, the text doesn't give any clear indication, but there were, uh, the text also does give indications that there was definitely some formation that happened in Egypt, and they did take practices with them. So for example, uh, back in Leviticus. had to think for a second there. Leviticus 18, this begins the unlawful sexual relations chapter. Um, and this deals with sexual ethic, not worship practices, but we can insinuate the same, I think. Leviticus 18 verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. And then it deals with a whole bunch of issues relating to cleanliness um, as regards sexual practices. So there are definitely some practices that they brought out of Egypt with them it'd be hard not to after being there for 400 years. Um, but there were also some clear differences. One of the reasons Egypt poses much less of a threat to Israel is because Israel is no longer at home in Egypt uh, as it were. she's in a new place. In my experience, um, I, I often not not often I occasionally get to go back to the farm. Uh, and when I'm back at the farm, I'm back uh, sometimes with my siblings, and it's very easy for me to revert back to ways of acting and talking and thinking that are normally dormant in me when I'm not at the farm and around those people. And so uh, even my style of humor, all of those things, they, they bounce back uh, from what had been 20 years ago, um, simply because I'm in a different place uh, where I had been. And so being in a new land, Israel has an opportunity to develop new habits. And so Egypt poses less of a threat than Canaan, where she's going to sit down and reside. So where you're going to be, the practices you have at the beginning are likely going to stick with you throughout because you're not relocating anymore. This is the place. And so starting good habits in a new place are uh, a must for Israel. And Egypt has less... Threat to Israel than the Canaanites doing that way. So that's why they're less mentioned, I think. Good question? That's a very good question. Um, Trying to find it. First Corinthians five, verse nine. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, revile or drunken drunkard, swindler. Um, Verse 12 actually is maybe a good place to follow up with. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church with whom you are to judge? So what I take from that are are a couple of things in relation to your question and what we're dealing with in Deuteronomy 7 and what Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, 6. Um, First, he assumes we will be associating with other people and we will be engaging with them in some form. However, I also believe that he is saying, uh, he's, he's saying, be careful what sort of associations you have with unbelievers. There are a kind that are legitimate and necessary for being in the world. Israel was expected that she would do business with other nations as well, but she herself would have a clean house, as it were, where even the person, even the sojourner in Israel's land, had to abide by the prohibitions of the law. They didn't have to worship Yahweh, but they couldn't do what Yahweh said can't be done when they're in the land. If they did, they were subject to Israel's laws. So there is having a clean house on the one hand and associating with others on another. And what I think Paul's dealing with in 2 Corinthians, what Moses is dealing with in Deuteronomy, in both cases, are have a clean house. There is a place where you live, and spend your time and are formed by other people, that needs to be purified in order to be a holy people to the Lord. Don't let your house be polluted, basically. Hope that satisfies. It's all I got. All right, anything else? Okay, we'll move on here a little bit. Uh, We'll pick it up yet, though, in verse 6. Again, verse 6 follows the logic of verse 5. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Holiness here is both given and pursued. That little phrase, holy to the Lord your God, ought to strike up in the mind of the average Israelite the little headpiece that the high priest was to wear. The high priest alone had this little gold plated headband that said, Holy to the Lord. Only the high priest wore it, but it was to be seen by all who control, who lived in Israel as they worshipped at the tabernacle. And that was the mindset that was not only to control the high priest, that was the mindset that was to control all of the people as well, that they are holy to the Lord. Israel didn't get to choose whether or not she was going to be God's people. Uh, the second part of verse 6 there. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. She could not choose whether or not she was called to be holy. She was chosen. She was selected. We find ourselves in the same boat if we believe the sorts of things that Paul says in Romans 8 and in Ephesians 1 and 2 and in places like that, that we've been chosen in him. Israel did have to decide whether she was going to obey or not whether she was going to live into that calling. Her election was by God's gracious choice, and she, because she was chosen, had all sorts of privileges and divine advantages that came along with that election to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But there is also a tremendous danger that comes along with that as well. Because Israel now knows the expectations of the Lord, she's held held accountable to the Lord's expectations, can no longer plead ignorance, uh, but obedience is rewarded with life. Whereas the contrast came in verse 4, if you turn away, the Lord's anger will be kindled and you'd be destroyed. Chapter 6, verse 24 gives the positive side of that, and we'll see it again later on in Deuteronomy 7. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. So what does Israel have as an opportunity before her in this calling that no other peoples have? Life. We are not chosen for death. We are chosen for life. So there is tremendous opportunity that lies there as well. And so Israel is given the warning, uh, walk after the Lord your God, don't go after other people, and if you do, life will come. If Israel lets her children wander after others, notice that in verse 4, by the way, for they would turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, which is you who didn't maintain the purity of your children, Uh, that wrath will come to swallow all of you together. Uh, So what Israel does with their children will rebound on their own heads as well. One more pause here before we move on to verse 7. Thoughts or questions? All right, verse 7. Why has God chosen Israel if Israel is to live differently than other nations because she's been chosen? One might ask why in the world was she chosen? And here is one of my favorite places in Deuteronomy. I wish we had more time. But here we are, verse seven. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So Moses begins with why the Lord didn't choose Israel. It wasn't impressive numbers. Now, we might think that this is a reference to Abraham, but I doubt it is. The pronouns here, again, the English just doesn't can't show it, but the pronouns have switched, and I'll, I'll read it to you the way, if we were in the South, it might be read. Verse 7. Not because y'all were more numerous than the peoples did the Lord desire you, and he chose you, all y'alls, by the way. Uh, the Lord desired y'all, and he chose y'all. But y'all the fewest from all the peoples. But because of the love of Yahweh, y'all, which is Moses saying that verse 8 is actually kind of choppy in Hebrew. It's got a a, a break between the Lord, uh, the Lord's love and you, as if Moses is saying it this way. The Lord didn't choose you because you're high in numbers. The Lord chose you because his love, you. Like, that makes no sense. Um, It's it's almost as if Moses is struggling to say, why you? And the best Moses can come up with is because the Lord loves you. (laughs) What's with that? Um, That's that's the tone of verse 8. And he is keeping the oath which he swore to y'all's father, that's why Yahweh brought you uh, with a strong hand, and he redeemed you, now singular. So what Moses is doing here is he's switching pronouns from the plural to the singular. Some commentators say it's random. I go with the every jot and tittle is significant, and there's something going on between the plural and the singular pronouns, and I think it's this. Usually when the plural is used it is used as speaking to Israel as a conglomeration of individuals. Y'all. When it is singular, it is in reference to the nation as a single entity. As the, that's the standard rule, I think. And what happens is Moses is looking at this conglomeration of individuals. Y'all gathered here. The Lord did not choose y'all because y'all were higher in numbers than the other peoples. You were the fewest. And notice how Moses talks about the seven nations that are currently in Canaan. Back in verse 1. He clears away many nations before you. The Hittites, the Gergeshites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. The Lord didn't choose the Israelites because they outnumbered anyone. They were less than everyone. So there is nothing in Israel that explains the Lord's selection of Israel. Unlike humanity, God's not impressed with numbers. He doesn't care that much about numbers because he can make numbers out of anything he wants. He can make Israel more or less or any other nation more or less than he wants. By grace, they all what they are. So rather than looking to themselves for the reason why Israel was selected, they're to look to God for why Israel was selected. And they look to the Lord's infinite Depth, Verse 8, But because the Lord loves you, and because he is a reliable and covenant-keeping God, and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that is why the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and brought y'all out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So, on the one hand, Not your numbers. You are small. You are insignificant. Nothing about you is why the Lord chose you. On the other hand, the Lord loves you. That is not that much unlike the love that we experience and the love we give. Genuine human love works on the same principles. We may love things about a person but that is not enough to hang long-term commitment on. Things about people changes, right? Yes, it's good to love things about people, but ultimately, if the reason we love someone else is because of the characteristics they currently embody, what happens when they no longer embody those characteristics? Why do you think our divorce rate is what it is? Ultimately... The way we explain why we love someone else has more to do with us as the one who loves than it does with the one whom we love. That has massive ethical implications for divorce, for homosexuality, and for everything else. Who we love has more to say about who we are than who the object is on whom we set our love. Even... The blessing of multiplications that the Lord set on Israel, even the Lord's own work on behalf of Israel in multiplying them is insufficient grounds for why the Lord chose them. Why did the Lord choose them? Because the Lord loves them. That's as deep as it goes. Why does the Lord why has the Lord chosen us? us this has huge implications as well for assurance there's nothing we can do to make the Lord choose us any more than he did, he didn't choose us because there was something significant about us he didn't choose us because he knew what we were going to be he didn't choose us because he knew what we were there's nothing why did the Lord set his love on who he set his love on because the Lord loves you and that's where it ends And, because he's keeping the oath that he swore to someone else. So not only does it not have anything to do with the Israelites, it really doesn't have anything to do with the Israelites. He's keeping an oath he swore to someone else. That is why the Lord desires or is bound to this people Israel. The second thing I'm going to quickly bring up is that the Lord didn't choose this generation as opposed to any other nation or as opposed to any other generation. Because of their numbers. The Lord didn't wait until Israel got sufficient enough numbers and then bring them out of Egypt. No, He did multiply them in Egypt, but He waited for a different reason to bring Israel out of Egypt rather than Israel's own size. Very quickly moving on here, verse 9 Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their faces those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. The Lord brought Israel out. The Lord brought y'all out. Therefore, you all know that the Lord your God is the faithful God, the one who keeps covenant and steadfast love. As those who have received that divine grace in history, your own experience in coming out of Egypt testifies to you that this is the character of God. Therefore, know that the Lord is going to be faithful to the covenant he has given. And that faithfulness is worked out in two directions. One direction is verse 9. He is the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him. And then verse 10, And repays to their faces those who hate him by destroying them. This is not what that text is saying. If you love the Lord, he keeps his covenant and a steadfast love. If you don't love the Lord, he forsakes his covenant and he vents his wrath on you. That's not what Moses is saying. What Moses is saying is, for those who love the Lord... He maintains the blessings of his covenant and his steadfast love with them. They will not be forsaken. The Lord will see through for them the blessings of the covenant. For those who hate him, he will see through the curses of the covenant. Because he's faithful and reliable, that's what he's going to do. New Testament uh, passage that we could flip to. I think we're familiar with, but let's go there anyway because it is Paul saying the exact same thing as Moses here and gives it a little bit more plainly, perhaps. 2 Timothy verse uh, chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. That does not say that if we wander away from God's kindness, that that will continue on forever. What it does say is if we are faithless, he remains faithful to deny us, which is the curse that the Lord laid out in the covenant. So the covenant is, you remain faithful to me, I give you these blessings. You remain faithless to me, according to the terms I've put down in the covenant, I will destroy you. So wander away from the Lord, hate him, he will destroy you because he's faithful, because he's reliable. His faithfulness and his reliability is to his word, not to those who wander away from him. So where the Lord's faithfulness lands makes a significant difference. Lots more could be said, but we are at time. Any thoughts or questions from you in closing? Very well. Thanks for joining. Have a good week.